Hey everybody, welcome to Airy Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today we're going to be discussing uh, some topics from the practice management exam. Uh, those topics are going to include creating a team, um, ethics, the standard of care, um, and everything else uh, you're going to need to know about the practice management side of architecture. Uh, after this episode, you know, you'll have a pretty good um, collection of test-taking strategies to help you feel comfortable um, as you tackle that exam. Uh, before we get started, if you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, uh, where we're going to be live with Mike Newman and G. Moon, who's a structural engineer and an architect, uh, we're going to be discussing the structural formulas and concepts uh, you'll see on the ARE. You can visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. So if you go there right now, uh, as we are doing our intros, you can go ahead and register for that one. Um, uh, just like this one, uh, you'll, have, uh, you'll have a chance to ask questions to Mike and G., uh, so that should be a really good one. A um, couple of updates to our products. Uh, as you guys probably know, in addition to our video lectures, we have online practice exams, online flashcards, and our group coaching. Um, previously, we've told you that uh, NCARB has approved our uh, ARE 5.0 PPD and PDD study materials, uh, which we are really excited about. And I'm proud to say that now we've just learned that uh, our practice management uh, course and all of our study materials have been approved as well. So if you go to our website, you'll actually see those three badges there. Um, I think they just actually they just sent us a letter this week. So we're super excited about that. Um, also, uh, thank you to all of you who stopped by uh, in New York City to come see us at the A18 conference. Um, uh, our fingers still hurt from giving out uh, thousands of T-shirts, which is kind of fun. Um, so uh, so thank you guys for stopping by. Um, I often like to write, remind folks that if you'd like your boss to pay for your Black Spectacles membership, be sure to tell them about our firm licenses for any size firm, whether you work at a 10-person or a 10,000-person firm. You know, we have firm licenses that give multiple users access, um, group administration tools and reporting and all that stuff. So go to blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn more about that. And then today... Um, if your boss is a total scoundrel and will not pay for your uh, your Black Spectacles <laughs> yes. membership, that's right. Can someone play the boo track? Um, uh, we're going to have a special discount on Black Spectacles individual memberships to share, uh, so we'll provide that coupon code at the end of the show. Um, so my guest today, uh, we'll start with Mr. Newman. If you don't know Mike, he's a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he is the instructor for Black Spectacles online ARE exam prep curriculum, which if you haven't already checked it out, uh, you can go to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free tutorials for our ARE 5.0 uh, courses. And we're very pleased today to have uh, Heather Rivera as a guest as well. She's an architect originally from California, uh, but she now practices in Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Um, she has an experience in all aspects of architecture, interiors, construction, and project management. Um, she's currently renovating a 19th century carriage house into a private residence and wedding venue. Hopefully she'll invite us to come see that uh, sometime shortly. Um, uh, when she was at HDR, she was the youngest person to hold the title of associate. Uh, she has a master's and bachelor's degree in architecture and urbanism. She studied, taught, and worked internationally in both France and China. Uh, and when she's not hanging out on the Cape with her family, she works as Black Spectacles resident architect to answer any of those tough questions uh, that you guys have. Heather, are you are you there? 
Hi guys, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for thanks for coming along here on this uh, this podcast ride for with us. Um, so before we get started, we'll be taking questions using the GoToWebinar question box. So feel free to post any questions you might have there, and I'll um, I'll tee them up for the for the group here. Um, and with that, I'm going to hand it over to you, Mike. Okay. Hey, Heather. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, so what we're going to do here is we just have a couple of different topics that we're going to just sort of chat about. We're going to do it um, kind of uh, telling some stories from our practices uh, as we've gone along, but then we'll try to keep relating it back to the exam and like what, how that anecdote could be an example of a question or, you know, different ways that it represents what we're uh, talking about uh, for the actual exams. So let's just uh, jump in um, and start this off. And one of the first things, one of the big things that you'll find on the practice management uh, exam is that many of the questions uh, are somehow, whether they sound like they are or not, are really about one of the central roles of the architect, which is to kind of create the design team, uh, getting the consultants together. So all the people outside of the architecture firm itself, um, making sure that you have the, you know, the right people to, to do the job that you need to get done, um, but also creating the team within the firm, uh, making sure that the right expertise level is there uh, and making sure that the, that the whole sort of uh, group dynamic is gonna make sense. Uh, and I know this is something, Heather, that uh, you've thought a lot about over the years and being in uh, very small and very large firms. Uh, and uh, I, I'm sure you have uh, a few thoughts to say about the creation of teams for these kinds of projects. Oh, sure. So right now I'm working more or less by myself and you just you wear this hat with every role in it. You're, you're the designer, you're the architect, you're going out there to look at the landscape, you're doing some interior work. That has not always been the case. When I joined a large firm, I was surprised to realize how many disciplines and people were on the project. One of the very first things that we did once a team was in the process of getting started was to make a cartoon set where we would work through the basic pages of an architect or, or a project that you know that you would have. So you'd go through, and that was kind of able to, to let us know how many hours, how many man hours, what kind of people that we would need on this project. So if we were working on a hospital, for example, you're going to need structural engineer. You're going to need a mechanical engineer, an electrical engineer, a plumbing engineer. But even underneath the architecture side, you would have someone that would just look at the project management things. Right. Project management, wayfinding, uh, all those things that for a hospital would be important. You're trying to sort of line up all, all those important disciplines and, and understanding them before the project even really starts. You're, you're sort of laying out how it's going to look, not what you're designing, but uh, all the places for those different disciplines to be able to plug in. Yeah, so this cartoon set that we do, before you even design the project, you're just kind of drafting it out to figure out what you need and who you need. Because even if you have an architect on the job, chances are with such a large project, you're going to need someone that knows life safety really well. You're going to need someone that knows how to plan for equipment or an equipment planner in a, an operating room. You may have someone that only deals with the financial aspect of the project. 
Yeah, and especially when you get those those bigger projects that uh, you absolutely will, those will be different people representing the different parts of the sort of important uh, disciplines that are sort of put forward. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, now you're a, a, a single person working on, on a lot of the different projects. One of the things I can pretty much guarantee, not absolutely, but pretty much guarantee is that the exam won't really be aimed at somebody doing everything themselves. Uh, like it, the exam questions are really focused on uh, maybe not quite as large as a big, you know, thriving uh, metropolis hospital, but something like a junior high school or something where it's, it's a, you know, a bunch of different disciplines are going to be involved and the architect plays a sort of key role in defining who should be there, like you were just talking about, uh, you know, what, you know, for, for this situation, what are going to be the, the disciplines and the, and the specific uh, knowledge bases that we're going to need in order to do this, and then making sure that those people are sort of logically, you know, plugged in and ready to go uh, at the right time. Yeah, the analogy that I always liked that I think someone probably said during my undergraduate days was that the architect's really the, the maestro or the conductor in an orchestra, right? And then you have the individual disciplines that you really have to start to bring all together to make the whole piece complete. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. And that is absolutely the way that the exam will be looking at it, uh, that, they'll, that the position that you are taking while you're reading the exam questions is, okay, I'm supposed to be the conductor. I'm not necessarily supposed to be the person drawing the detail or the person doing the ceiling finish uh, schedule or something like that. That the, the role you're playing as you're taking that exam is as the conductor. So you're, you have set up where all the different disciplines sit and how they're gonna communicate and how that's gonna, gonna work. And I think it's, like I said at the very beginning of this, it's really important to sort of separate out those that are part of the uh, architecture office, uh, you know, the, the people that are within the, the sort of architecture milieu, and then those who are the consultants that are brought in. Uh, because it's uh, considered, I think, two different sort of sets of communication. One is really about how an office thrives. You know, do you have people working well together kind of in, a, in an open setting? Do you have a, you know, easy way to communicate between different people who are working on the same project, uh, you know, either through technology ways or just through conversation or, you know, uh, meetings every week or, uh, you know, however it goes? But then there's a more formalized set of relationships to the consultants uh, because those are contractual and they're, they're a different sort of set of ways that you start to do those communications. And one of the things you will find throughout the exam, many of you probably heard me say this many times in different contexts, is that uh, the questions will always fall back on uh, creating a... Uh, rhythm, uh, so the, a knowable rhythm of meetings, uh, an understandable system of communication that everybody knows how to plug into. Everybody can see the overall arc so they know what their part is and when it needs to be done in order for it to make the whole thing sort of uh, 
go. So, I mean, I think that really to Heather, to your point is that conductor role, right? That's, it's really about kind of making sure that everybody knows when they're supposed to do the thing they need to do in order to make the project work. Yeah, and I could even go to say that your your role isn't even done when the project is done. Some of the biggest learning opportunities I've had have been doing your lessons learned at the end of a project where you sit back and reflect and go, you know what, that project could have used more communication. Or we could have done this up front. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, the, the lessons learned thing is something that uh, is not always done, but it sure should be. Um, because we, every project, you always learn something about the thing and it's almost always about communication. Uh, I mean, sometimes it's about specific materials or something like that, but, uh, you know, the architecture discipline is just so laced with communication, uh, between all sorts of different players that it really becomes about having, you know, a way to talk to each other. And you can so easily imagine questions that could come at you that are, uh, things like, uh, here's a, here's a bad situation. Uh, you know, what should you do? And then a is, uh, you should yell at the people B is, uh, you should, you know, call your insurance company. You know, the answer is always going to be, uh, it should be carefully thought through and brought up at the weekly meetings. You know, it'll be something like that. Right. Uh, and it, it doesn't always seem like the obvious answer because it seems sort of pedestrian but that's what they're looking for. They're looking for a conductor who can kind of uh, make it all sort of fit together. Sounds good. Absolutely. Um, having done this for a long time, I can tell you uh, putting a team together is a, a kind of fascinating process because it's partly about making sure all the disciplines are there, but it's also partly about personalities and making sure that uh, everybody can work together and there's a logic to how people work together. Um, so that's a little harder to ask a question about. So I don't think that's quite going to be the focus, but these ideas of, uh, organizing disciplines being, uh, finding ways to, for them to communicate, uh, like Heather was saying, making sure that, uh, you understand the knowledge base that's needed for each individual project type. Uh, all of those are going to be definitely, uh, questions that you would get on this. We do have a question from the group here. Um, uh, Jay uh, asks, uh, in terms of assembling a team, um, does the exam contain any uh, questions or issues involving consultants that are part of a team, but contracted to the owner, such as maybe a civil engineer? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, my guess is that, uh, Heather, you may have some thoughts about this too, but um, my guess is that the, a, a complication like that would be mostly about the the very complication you just asked about. So um, I don't think there will be a, a difficult nuanced question about uh, the owner has a civil engineer that's you know working on a project, et cetera, et cetera. It's just that you should understand that there are certain consultants that sometimes uh, are under the architectural uh, field of influence and certain ones that are sometimes under the owner's field of influence. And then there's some that are always essentially under the owners and some that are always under the architects. And so you should just have a kind of a sense of the lay of the land. And civil is a really interesting one 
because uh, because Sybil is below below grade, it kind of falls into that uh, sometimes category along with the surveyors and some other folks where they all kind of work together. And that's often over on the owner's side. Um, I don't think there'll be complicated questions, but understanding that each of the different important players, the owner, the architect, the GC, have their own, uh, the, the sketch that I always do is the owner, the architect, uh, and the GC, and then there's a bunch of uh, uh, satellites around each of them, and there's the subs around the GC, there are the consultants around uh, the architect, but then there's another group of folks that are around the owner as well, which have to be bankers and funders and environmental review people and surveyors and all of those folks. And sometimes some of these folks can be going to both, which is can be a little bit of a weird thing, but it won't be a complicated question, I don't think. Heather, do you have any thought about that? No, not really. I think you hit a nail on the head though with the civil comment. I've seen a, a few test takers come in confused with where a civil contract ends and where like a plumbing contract begins because those like you were mentioning, one is really headed up by the owner while one is kind of headed up by the architecture and design team. Yeah, and, and it can be a little confusing. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's this full circle thing again that it's communication because there have definitely been times that we've gone out on a job site and there is, you know, a six inch gap between a plumbing line and a civil line and well, how do you connect these two and why didn't someone communicate where one scope line ended and one began? And you can't just tell the water to jump, it just doesn't work that way, I don't think. <laughs> Yeah, and um, you, to get back to your, your thing there about communication, I mean, like I've been sort of hammering on this, um, that's a great example of a question that, uh, to Jay's question um, that could come at you about this, which is, all right, the owner has a civil engineer, uh, the uh, architect has a, a mechanical and plumbing engineer and blah, 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 blah situation. Well, again, it's all about the regular meetings, finding ways for them to communicate with each other, following the path of the um, of, of the contract, so that you know the mechanical engineer talks through the architect, the uh, civil engineer talks through the owner. Uh, hopefully, you just put them all in the same meeting, and that makes it easy. But it's all about kind of making that uh, that communication work. Okay, I think we're going to shift on to the next one. Governing the work environment. So this is another one that you're likely to get uh, a number of questions on. You're not going to get a huge number of questions, I don't think, but it is a, sort of an important kind of concept here uh, in that, you know, they have this whole thing called now practice management. And so they want to ask questions about how you manage a practice. Uh, it used to be in the under other systems that this these questions kind of got buried into others. And so they didn't have to have a whole lot of specific like, all right, how do you actually run the run the firm itself? And now they are they need to fill that exam. And for good reason, it's it's an important thing. So this has now become an important idea on on this particular exam. But like I say, it won't be loaded with questions on this, but there should, will definitely be some. And the first thing I want to just mention is that uh, there's going to be sort of two different ways of thinking about it. Uh, one is the fact that the in work environment you're talking about is architects. So there's going to be a whole bunch of architecture related 
issues about you know things that govern the work environment for architects. But then there's also going to be a whole series, and I'm just going to write it as biz business. Um, any business doing anything out in the world has a series of issues that govern it. And you need to be aware of those issues uh, in order to be able to run a practice, to be able to start and run a practice. And so nothing on this exam is going to get particularly deep into any of these things. But, you know, for example, um, when architects think of OSHA, uh, they almost always, uh, the occupational whatever OSHA stands for, safety hazard, something, I don't know. Uh, they almost always immediately assume that we're talking about uh, what the GC has to be thinking about because the OSHA stuff is all the GC's world uh, about, you know, when they're on a job site and what they're building and all of that. But in fact, you know, uh, an office is also a job site and people like as an architecture firm in the same way that if you were a lawyer's firm, you'd have to make sure that it was a safe environment for those lawyers, for those architects, for anybody visiting, those kinds of things. So there's a whole series of different places where these different uh, branches of government or uh, local government, federal government, uh, places that reach into these firms and you have to be sort of respecting those, not just making a nice, interesting place to work, but also respecting the, the governance of that as a process. Uh, Heather, do you want to add something? Well, I think right now we're only kind of touching upon, well, with OSHA anyway, the, the physical safeness of things, right? Right, and there's many more, right? There's many more, such as discrimination. Right. Uh, I'm not going to write all these things out. Uh, discrimination. There we go. All right. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I just made it sound like I'm asking people to discriminate, which I didn't mean. I should have said discrimination, but you get the idea. Uh, and that that comes from uh, making sure that there is sort of equity in hiring, uh, making sure that there is equal pay for folks, um, that uh, sometimes is a law, sometimes is more a code of ethics issue, uh, sometimes uh, is just sort of... Uh, kind of the marketplace, but uh, the idea of sort of how you govern that uh, workspace, making sure that things are not discriminatory, making sure that things are equitable kind of across the board. Another example kind of, I think, ripped from the headlines, if you will, would be the Me Too stuff that's going on. Um, and far be it from me, the uh, old white man to tell everybody about Me Too, but um, the idea that, um, you know, architecture has been a pretty male dominated enterprise for uh, you know many decades and it, it does not have a particularly stellar history from a, a sexual harassment and um, uh, pay equity and issues along those lines and so I can completely imagine that they will on the exam want to be current and relevant and have, uh, questions along these lines uh, that you should be sort of thinking about and ready for. Um, there's also a whole bunch of other sets of issues, right? I mean, uh, it's not just uh, discrimination and, and safety. Uh, it's also, you know, there's a process to how you pay people. You're paying taxes. You're uh, getting, uh, you know, health benefits or whatever it happens to be. The, uh, the, another interesting example of sort of a hot topic recently has been whether 
um, whatever we're calling interns these days, um, should uh, can if they're being paid hourly, can they be paid uh, time and a half for overtime? Uh, in the old days, nobody ever did that, uh, but it's actually now considered uh, the assumed way that you're supposed to operate uh, through the uh, uh, AIA kind of thinking about these things these days. Um, so there's a whole series of these different issues, but I think you'll find that most of them will sort of uh, fall into a couple of different categories. Uh, like I said, some will be specific to an architecture firm, uh, which have to do with keeping your CE credits up and having the correct number of licensed uh, people on board and that there's always somebody on board who, uh, uh, you know, can stamp a drawing uh, and is working on a set, uh, all of those kinds of things. Um, uh, there's, um, you know, specific issues that are just, you know, any business related. So that's making sure you have insurance, uh, making sure so you have, uh, not, you know, an example that goes into both of those categories would be in the architecture side, you have professional uh, errors and emissions uh, uh, insurance. On the business side, you have general liability insurance, which just means uh, the next time that Mark comes over to my office uh, when he trips on the rug and falls and tries to sue me, uh, that I have some insurance to cover that, right? That doesn't fall into my professional liability. It falls into my general liability. So these are all like a couple different ways of thinking about these things. And when you're looking at an exam question, you're sort of parsing it down to figure out what's the question really about. And that's one thing, if I can interject for just a moment, uh, I've heard a lot of test takers, and I myself was very guilty of this. NCARB is not out there to trick you. And I think that's something that a lot of us are, are guilty of inferring into some of these questions. Their questions are very literal, and they're testing your knowledge on very specific points. And not, and, and their questions are I don't want to say black and white because I can feel kind of fuzzy, but they're not expecting you to go, well, if they, if we're asking X, we're implying Y and Z as well. I'm not sure if I'm kind of getting off the yeah, they'll, point. Yeah, they'll but. tell you if Y and Z are part of the question. Yeah, uh, that, that they're not trying to trip you up. They're just trying to see if you know about a certain topic. So I think what you're getting at is don't overthink it. Yeah, that was much better stated. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. That's a really important thing to say because nobody is going to expect that because you've studied for the practice management uh, segment of the ARE that you are suddenly a, an expert on the you know close reading of the clauses on the general liability uh, insurance waivers. You know, like it, it's not meant to be that level of detail. It's really just kind of big picture. How does the whole thing work? You create teams, you figure out who needs to be a part of something, you figure out what it means to have a firm in a in a governing locale, uh, you, you're licensed by the state, you understand that once you say you're a firm that you have certain rules and regulations you need to follow, some of which are sort of about safety and things like that, other ones are about uh, you know, paying people equally and, and being a sort of reasonable boss, right? So that all of these things just kind of fall into place and you have a sort of an idea of that overarching idea. All right, I think that's pretty good. Let's move on. Ethics. 
All right. Ethics is kind of an interesting one. Um, and ethics will definitely show up on the exam. It may not be obvious that it's a question about ethics, though. Um, so that's ethics. Is the, it's worth spending a little time thinking about how ethics uh, is talked about in sort of architectural circles in order to really understand some of the some of the questions. I think the easiest way to do this now, I've been mentioning the AIA a lot. Um, uh, because it's, I think, the easiest way to sort of think about the exam is kind of where the AIA is sort of pushing folks. Uh, and the AIA Code of Ethics um, is actually a very useful and interesting document. Uh, I have many friends uh, I teach, and we talk about this stuff all the time. Uh, and uh, many of them find the Code of Ethics problematic for lots of different reasons. It's weights certain things and doesn't weight as much on other things. It, the way it breaks it down is a little sort of awkward. Um, but, you know, at some level, it's as good as any to start with, and it's the one that you need to know for the exam. Uh, so I would absolutely find and then read the, uh, the AIA general uh, uh, code of ethics. And they do a kind of an interesting thing where they have uh, uh, broken down into a few different simple categories with these canons. So canon one is sort of a general thing. And this is like a big abstract idea. Canon two is a different general big abstract thing. And then as you go through it, you realize, okay, then, then there's standards that fit under each of the uh, canons. And then under the standards, there's rules. And so it's a way of being able to talk kind of big generally, because ethics is such a weird way to talk about things, you need to be able to, well, what do we, what do we mean? We say this big idea, but then you have to have, a, okay, what does that mean out in the real world? And then the rules become, all right, not just out in the real world, but like, here's an example uh, under the second canon, which is uh, public uh, being, um, sort of protecting the public, uh, you know, one of the rules is uh, don't be involved in bribes. And so that's kind of an interesting thing that you, you shouldn't as a professional architect of a, you know, licensed uh, by your state, uh, you should not be promoting uh, something that is illegal, that is not uh, the way that uh, business ethics should be run. It doesn't really matter whether that's, in a, you know, like, well, it's culturally acceptable in this location or something because it's been done all the time. Well, that doesn't matter. Like, you are, should never be in that position. So this is a sort of an example where uh, the canon of, uh, you know, the, the big idea is protect the public. But then when you get down to the rules, it can be pretty specific. So no bribes, uh, follow the codes and laws. Uh, don't ever represent anything to the public that isn't true, uh, things like that. So, and just to give you a sense of this sort of span of, of that AIA document, the first one, first canon is sort of a general issues. It's about uh, keeping up to date, you, they, you know, wanting architects to, you know, be ready for what's next and always kind of knowing about new materials, things like that. Canon two is about uh, protecting the public. Canon three, and it's interesting that it's after Canon two, is about protecting the client and sort of looking out for the client. So note that from the AIA standpoint, protecting the public precedes it, which I think is meaningful and sort of tells you a bit about how they see the role of the architect. Uh, the Canon four 
is about being good to the profession, which is interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, meaning that uh, you sort of represent the profession well, that you don't do things that make architects look bad. It's sort of interesting that they think of that as um, uh, part of the sort of canon aspect of this. And then uh, uh, five is treating employees and colleagues well. Uh, and that means not stealing from other firms. That means not uh, treating people you work with badly, things like that. And then the other one is six is uh, treating the environment well. Um, so I'll sketch a couple of these things out, but uh, that kind of gives you a sense of the range of what kind of ethical thinking and how it might kind of come through uh, the exam. Uh, any, any thoughts from your end, Heather? So I think this, that's a great overview and completely in depth with what's going on. And I highly recommend everyone read through it. Uh, it's a fascinating read, maybe a bit dry at times, but definitely necessary. But I, I think what's also important to know is a lot of firms, a lot of jurisdictions or states may also have their own ethics policies. Absolutely. Good point. Um, so I can just say, you know, for example, if you're working for a, a large firm, one of their big ethics, uh, similar to the whole bribery thing, is maybe once you're no longer working with them, you don't work with any competitors for a, a certain amount of time. Just that whole idea of the knowledge base being shared or stolen or, or that sort of thing. Right. And, you know, you'll find that there are actually codes of ethics uh, in each state for whatever state you are uh, licensed in or working in. There'll be a slightly separate version of the code of ethics. Uh, big firms, as you say, small firms even. Um, but then also clients you're working with may have uh, codes of ethics that are built into uh, their contracts. Um, for example, if you're working for a big uh I don't, I don't know that this is true for McDonald's, but let's just use McDonald's as an example. Uh, I would bet that uh, as soon as you're signing a contract with McDonald's, you are also signing that you will you know, meet their code of ethics because they don't want you as a, 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 in a sort of a, a consultant for them to represent them badly and do anything that would make it so that they would be contributing to a bad ethical situation. So there are lots of different sort of ethical uh, things to consider and each one of them has its own set of agendas. Um, so I, I, I think the best thing about uh, the AIA one is that it just gives you one really clear set of agendas about how they think about how these things should be thought about and it is definitely one that will likely show up on the exam. But uh, it also, as Heather was sort of alluding to, you might get a question that could be, you know, here's an ethical situation. How do we deal with it? And so, you know, the answer may not be about ethics at all. It might be about communication systems or it might be about falling back to the contracts or it might be about, right? Because all of these things are actually built in to the ways that we communicate, to the ways that we uh, write contracts with each other. What specific contracts do we choose uh, starts to develop what our ethical 
requirements and what our ethical hopes are uh, in these sets of relationships. So often the ethical questions are not directly about ethics. They're using ethics as a way to get at all of these other issues. Uh, any other thoughts, Heather? Um, not necessarily. I think we've covered this topic fairly well. It's a rather robust topic. Yeah, and I think the, the takeaway is read through and start looking for these issues. Yes. All right, let's move on. Hey, hey guys, oh. as you move on, um, yeah. a question from Tom. Uh, the exam, the, the actual exam here, um, does it incorporate the 2017 version of the AIA Code of Ethics? Um, can you just comment on, is it updated annually? Is it updated every month? Like, how, Yeah, I, so the, the exam will include 2017 versions of the contracts. Um, and will eventually include uh, something like something like the ethics will uh, the issues will eventually catch in. They'll have some questions in there for a while that are uh, from previous versions. Um, but yeah, it will eventually sort of all catch up. They none of them will be so specific or complicated that it'll be a fine reading between the 2017 versus the 2013. I think it's probably a safe is a good way to say it's it's probably a pretty safe read to read the 2017 version of the code of ethics yeah um uh, if you're going to read one you know read the newest yeah one. read the newest one um there's there's a bunch of different ways to sort of uh, attack it but the the thing to, to say about that is just just as heather was saying a minute ago they're not trying to trip you up like they're not going to say ah we got them they don't know that in 17 it changed from you know must have to shall have or something like like they're not looking for that kind of uh detail uh it's really just sort of a general understanding of the kind of topic areas and how they're balanced out so that you could have a, an opinion of how to react to a situation because think of the questions as scenarios that are sort of tossed at you and then how do you react to them that's really what they're they're trying to do all right, on this uh, next one, we're talking the standard of care, which is uh, uh, actually, even though it sounds sort of um, plain, um, is actually a, an important contractual legal uh, term. And so the standard of care, the general standard of care is the thing that's in the contracts that says what level uh, 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 let's see, how do you describe it? Uh, what the level of uh, legal care you are required to give to a client, to the public, to a project. Uh, and the usual way of talking about this is, uh, and some of you probably heard this before, uh, that the standard of care for most architectural projects is uh, that you did the work uh, in a similar way as any other normal architect in a similar situation doing a similar uh, type of project in a similar location uh, would do. So the standard of care is not about, hey, uh, you know, we're going to provide the most beautiful building ever or the most sustainable building ever. The point of the standard of care is that it gives a place when something goes wrong, is there a way to uh, understand whether it was something that the architect really should have known. Like it's the kind of thing that a normal architect doing a similar thing in a similar place 
with a similar building type would have would have understood, well, then you should know. If it was something that just came out of the blue and there was really no way to know it in a normal architect in the same situation, et cetera, et cetera, wouldn't likely know that, then you that wouldn't be something that would be considered part of the standard of care. So this is the standard of care is this kind of important uh, line that gets drawn uh, on all of these different kinds of legal topics. And usually it's only being drawn if something has gone wrong. Uh, so there's sort of an understanding that, uh, you know, you're going back to the contracts to understand uh, when something has happened that's gone badly, how do we make sure this is going to work out okay? Like the, the right people get blamed for, blamed for a problem. Yeah, and if I can just add to that too, I think something that's important to note with this standard of care is that the contract nor the profession expect anyone to be perfect 100% of the time. You know, I think they, somewhere in one of those AI contracts, it mentions that you need to practice professionally and with competency and ask questions when you need to, but you're not a soothsayer, you can't read the future, if costs are going to escalate and you undercalculated or underquoted something, uh, you don't have to be perfect at all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you, you don't have to be able to see through drywall to see what's inside a wall. You don't have to be able to see underground. Uh, you know, there's lots of examples of that. Um, but you should be bringing a certain knowledge base to the building typology, to the situation, to the landscape, to the context, uh, to the way the contracts work. Uh, and But that level uh, of sort of um, knowledge that you're bringing is a level of competency. It's not the level of perfection. It's not the level of beauty. It's not the level of that. You're contractually bringing competency uh, and any way that you might read that. One of the examples I always give um, is, is a, I, I simplify it from my actual life, but I had a similar thing to this, but I'll make it a little simpler. Um, imagine you're an architect and you're working on a project and uh, it's at a corner, a busy sort of uh, suburban corner, and you know that there used to be a gas station there. And you design the project, you um, you know have your drawings done, you get your permits, you do all that stuff, and they start digging into the ground. And oh my gosh, look at that! There's uh, an old oil tank that now we have to deal with from an environmental standpoint. Uh, should you have known? Like you can't see into the ground but you probably should have known enough to say, hey, there used to be a gas station here. Have we done an appropriate environmental report? Is Have people done the investigations? Like it's not necessarily the architect's role to do that, but to be sort of understanding of what a likely thing would be there. If you knew there was a gas station there, well, there's pretty good chance there's some environmental issues around there. Now take that exact same story and then put it out into a, it's an old farm field uh, you're, you know, building a, a housing development or something like that, and they start digging, uh, and they come across an old uh, oil tank uh, underneath this farm field. Well, there's really no possible way that you would have known that that was there, and so that's completely ridiculous. For there's no way you should be sort of sued for that or anything like that. Would be just impossible for you to have foreseen. So it's the same thing in the same location, but the context matters, right? If it's a situation where 
you're bringing enough knowledge base that a competent person should be able to say, oh, something's something might be there, something's up with that. Uh, then it, so it's not about the fact that there's a tank in the ground. It's about the context. Uh, it's about the contract. It's about what you've said, you know, how you said who is going to take care of environmental issues uh, in the contract. So it's the context around the issue that is what the question is going to be about. Uh, because there is never a situation like almost nothing can you say, uh, you know, whose fault is it if there's a tank in the ground, right? It's it's always more co complex than that, and it's always about the context. So the standard of care is just sort of understanding uh, where the architect is in that context. Sharon, I think it's interesting too. You dropped that word sue, Mike, and I know. I know now that there are a lot of people that are even licensed architects um, or even you'll find a building official that they don't want to approve a, sent, uh, a set of drawings or they don't want to stamp a set of drawings because they don't want to take on that that liability that everyone is too happy and can come after you. Yeah. I think it's kind of important to note too that, you know, you can't, sure, someone could open up a lawsuit. But there are a lot of different steps underneath uh, the standard of care that need to be proven before something can go to that extreme. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the things to say is that when you talk about legal issues, uh, lawsuits and things like that, there's many steps that happen before anybody really gets to the idea of the standard of care. Uh, you know, should you even be named or is do the people suing have standing to sue, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things. And most of the time, things actually get worked out through mediation or arbitration or some other thing that don't actually ever go to a, a litigation type trial. Um, and that's most of the time a good thing for architects. Not always. There are situations where that's that's not true. But uh, essentially, the idea that you kind of reduce the time it takes and the the cost of lawyers and all of that stuff almost always is better going to mediation and, and arbitration. Um, and but these things come up all the time, but hardly ever play themselves out. Uh, you know, I bet uh, in my years I've been threatened to be sued probably I don't know 15 times and actually been part of a suit uh, I don't know three something like that. And then of the three, none of them have ever. Uh, really ever, nothing's ever come of it. So uh, again, kind of that not perfect thing, just the fact that uh, you're, you're, not you're not trying to not get sued. You're just trying to be aware of the process of the legal understanding, the legal context and where the architect sits in that so that you don't accidentally take on more liability than you meant to. So for example, I heard an interesting thing at the AIA conference uh, a little while ago where some lawyers were talking about how uh, people had been adding writers onto their contracts to talk about uh, that they would get them lead gold or lead platinum uh, on their projects. And by being specific about it in the way that they had been, they were essentially promising something that they didn't have full control over because so many other people, the GC, the owner, uh, potentially the uh, code officials have a say in that, that you can't really guarantee contractually before a project has started that you can guarantee somebody a, a lead platinum building. 
Um, and so that's an example of sort of understanding the kind of the, you know, the standard of care is saying, you know, reasonableness, understanding that you're not perfect, but that you're able to sort of be competent, right? And then if you start slipping in things that imply perfection, uh, it can alter the, the, the contract in an important way. And then that becomes a problem down the road. Mike, one question from the group. Yeah. Um, uh, the standard of care is found in what AIA contract or is it in a contract? Uh, yeah, it's actually mentioned in uh, essentially all of the contracts um, and uh, described, I think it's in the A201 uh, is where it's actually described. Um, but uh, on some of the contracts, it's, uh, like the a few of them, it's mentioned directly in the contract as well. And there's a little paragraph description. And the paragraph will sound almost exactly like what I just said. It's just slightly different wording, but uh, similar location, similar type typology, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Thank you. All right, let's move on. The legal side of things. So we've already sort of started jumping into this uh, by talking about through the code of ethics, the contracts and things like that. Um, but uh, you know, there's a whole series of different ways that uh, this exam becomes about legal questions. Um, and one of, the, one of the big aspects of the kind of legal thinking, you could already hear in the way that Heather and I were talking about that last example, is that sort of idea of risk and how risk sort of exists out in the world, especially in the architectural and construction world, and that you're never gonna get rid of risk, right? I mean, everything you do is risky and that's good, right? That's how things get done. That's how interesting buildings get made. You know, it's, a, it's good to be uh, at least a bit risky, but understanding risk and the kind of legal ramifications that sort of flow around it are really important. Uh, Heather, you wanna maybe give an example or something? Uh, I'm not necessarily thinking of all the different risk points when you, when you mention this, but I am thinking that um, to kind of begin to understand these points of risk, uh, similar to what you have already said, is you need to know what you know and know what you don't know and ask the relevant questions to the experts that you have on your team. Yeah, and, and so again, just to be a <laughs> beat the dead horse here, uh, it's a lot about communication. I like how you went full circle there. Um. <laughs> uh, so uh, maybe, could you, like, do you have an example of, of that? Know what you know and know what you don't know? Uh, you, you know, I, I'm thinking specifically with, you know, this tiny little building that we're doing right now. Um, the original person who took on this job, so I'm the second person to have worked on this job. The original person to work on the job, you know, knows all about the, culture of the area, the, the scope, the architecture of the area, um, but knew enough um, to know that he did not know all of the, the code requirements, all the accessibility requirements, um, and that sort of thing. And before that really blew up in his face, he, he knew to, to ask out for help. Yeah. yeah. Um, so before signing off on anything or, you know. I think that's a, that's a really good sort of general comment. I mean, this is one of those things 
young architects, and I say this like I was the worst about this when I was a young man, um, young architects don't like implying that they don't know everything. Uh, it's just one of those things. People who become architects tend to be people who want to feel like they know everything. And, you know, nobody knows everything. Uh, like, there's all sorts of situations that you have to be uh, willing to sort of find out uh, from other people and, and to be open to that uh, communication and to be looking to find the right people who can help in situations. Um, and then there's other times when it's important for the architect to be able to kind of make a decision on their own and, and move forward. Uh, but uh, essentially at no point in architecture and at no point in the exam will the exam be expecting that you would know everything. Right. The whole point of the new exam is that you can find it out. And the ways you find it out is by reviewing the code, reviewing the program, reviewing the uh, client needs, reviewing the context, uh, by going to uh, the, the site, understanding the site uh, better by spending time there. So you're you're always sort of searching for more information because the assumption is that you don't have it all. Uh, and you, you, nobody would expect you to have it all. That's not the point. The point is how do you organize what you do know and how do you organize so the points that you don't know have a place to slide into your design and into your communication systems of the, the drawing sets, et cetera. Um, so like a, I think a, a kind of an example of this uh, sort of thing is, like, you know, you imagine you're, you're on a job site and you're walking around the job site and somebody is uh, digging a, a, a big trench and there's a bunch of people all walking around next to this big earth moving device that's digging a, digging a great big trench. Uh, like it feels a little dangerous. It doesn't feel quite right. You know, what should you do? Well, the sort of obvious thing you should do is tell them, well, don't let people walk near the big trench and let the trench get finished. So say, Hey, put a fence here or stop doing that while people are around or something along those lines. But that's actually not your role. And so what you're talking about in that situation is assuming the liability of the GC. So the GC's role is to make sure that safety on the job site is there. And the GC's role is to figure out when the trench gets dug and how that's all going to work. So you really shouldn't be saying anything about that on that job site. But of course, that's also a little ridiculous, right? That if you can't say anything, then you know somebody could get hurt. So because you're a person, because you're you know trying to do the right thing out in the world, like there's going to be moments where you're going to say something that is a little different than what is sort of the direct legal understanding. And this is that kind of understanding moment where you're trying to place in the context of the ethical discussions, the contractual discussions, uh, all of the, the what it means to be an architect, um, what the point of what your role is on a job site, and then making sure that you sort of understand the gist of how all those things relate so that when you do say something to the GC, you're not undermining your firm and taking on legal responsibility that you didn't mean to take, right? So that's really kind of the legal side of things it's not about knowing all the exact detail. Again, it's sort of just making sure that you understand the context of the contracts, that you understand the context of the sort of ethical relationships of, 
uh, you to the public, uh, that you understand the kind of how the team works and where the levels of expertise are. Uh, and even in that context, the GC is part of that team, right? They have certain levels of expertise. You may not know uh, about all their levels of expertise. So having systems and sort of understanding how all those things kind of fit together in a sort of general way, that's a big part of this exam. Very little of it is going to be super specific. Uh, a lot of it will be, here's a scenario, what, what makes the most sense out of these possible answers? And a lot of times, not to beat the dead horse, it comes back, the, the question on the exam will lead back to some sort of communication. Yeah. I mean, like you're saying here, you, you see someone who's working on an elevator uh, chase and he's not tethered off or something. Do you just turn around and walk away knowing that that's not reasonable? Or do you communicate concern somewhere without dictating it? Exactly. Communicate without dictating it. That's a great way to say that. I'm going to steal that one and use that in my later lectures. Uh, exactly. So I think that's a good one to sort of wrap this up on that sense of, you know, none of these are about detail. They're all about sort of trying to understand the context about how these things sort of relate to each other and then being able to see that context in the questions so that you can answer. And it's almost always going to be be reasonable, use good communication, uh, get the expertise that you need, uh, make sure you're following all the governing bodies that are appropriate for you to follow. Like none of it is going to be uh, how do you sneak through without, you know, getting insurance or anything like that. Right. It's all going to be about just doing it sort of reasonably. And that's what the, the practice management exam is going to be about. Awesome. Well, thank you, guys. Uh, thank you, Mike and Heather, um, both for uh, for walking us through some of these key concepts for the practice management exam. Um, uh, for, for everyone who's tuned in right now, if you'd like to attend our next ARE Live broadcast, uh, which is going to be actually in September, so we're going to take August off. Um, so to be in a few months, or in a couple of months, I should say, um, we're going to be ta uh, tackling uh, structures topics relating to the ARE. Um, so we just posted the link uh, to register for that in the chat box here on the in the GoToWebinar control panel. So just go down to where it says chat, and then the link is there. Uh, you can register there. Or uh, you can simply go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register as well. And just like today's episode, you'll have a chance to ask questions, uh, and, and we'll share your answers uh, with Mike and G for live feedback during the broadcast. Um, as I said at the top, uh, to learn more about our ARE exam prep curriculum, um, there's actually a lot of free uh, course videos. If you go to blackspectacles.com, um, you can check those out. Uh, and if you want to have your boss pay for your membership, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com firms to learn more about our firm memberships for firms of any size. Um, we talked about how we're proud to be the first ever NCARB uh, approved test prep provider with our three uh, exams, uh, the practice management exam, PPD, and PDD. Uh, we'll let you guys know as those other ones are under review currently uh, when the other three are, um, are reviewed as well and approved. Uh, and then lastly, for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE right now, you can use this coupon code PCM71018PC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. And then finally, tomorrow we'll send you an email follow-up about today's live broadcast. So please let us know what you think, share any suggestions you may have for improving um, 
uh, Airy Live. Uh, and as I always do, you know, I promise we read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for tuning in. Thank you.